Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. Thank you, Caitlin. Uh, Caitlin has been around for a lot of the beginning of this church. She has dreamed and prayed with us, and so it was really special to get to have her be a part of something that we were doing on Sunday, and not just Caitlin. So we, uh, we knew we wanted to plant a church in the Midwest, so we started a road trip a few years ago. Thought we'd end up in Indy, maybe Nashville, possibly Chicago, but we knew we had a place to stay in Caitlin's parents, Mike and Sue, in Mason. So it's like, well, we should just swing by at least because we can, like, not pay for a hotel. <laughs> it's the church planter, like, mentality. And uh, it was because we swung by Cincinnati and spent one day here that we've ended up here. Uh, it was, like, such a profound God moment where we were in the city. And so uh, the Snyders have had a huge impact on this church. And, and unrelated to the Snyders, I do want to talk about difficult people this morning. <laughs> has nothing to do with them, but that is my seamless transition Uh, Because uh, conflict uh, is a big deal, difficult people is a big deal, we always are encountering difficult people. Uh, I know that is true about you, and I don't know everyone here, but um, I do know that you have encountered a difficult person. And uh, and we're big on, like, the gifts of the Spirit here, uh, but this is not a prophetic moment. I do know in your future you will encounter another difficult person. This is just, like, part of what we do. This is part of living life, and that's why we felt like this would be so useful to talk about, because we are constantly encountering difficult people or people that are just in difficult circumstances, and the reason this is important, the reason that we decided, like, okay, this seems worthy to kind of put in this series and and tie in with the rest of it, is because we are so focused and so obsessed with having good, healthy, deep, authentic relationships here. And, uh, and if we're going to be focused on having good, healthy relationships, that doesn't come about without knowing how to healthfully engage with difficult people. And so as I was preparing, uh, and this came to me later in the week, but I was praying, I was studying, I was looking into lots of different things, and of course, um, lots of names came up as I was preparing, lots of faces came up, and, uh, and it's probably going to happen to you over the next few minutes. But here was a realization I made a couple days ago. And it was really good for me to kind of come into this a little more humbly. And it's that there are times I'm the difficult person. And Caitlin said it, but there are times that actually I'm the difficult person. And there's a lot of people in this room that like know me very well or have known me for a long time. And it's humbling to think that they could walk away, hopefully learning something, and say, that's going to be really good the next time that Chris does blank. (laughs) And, uh, and it's humbling to think about, but I want to encourage you at least to enter into to this with humility because there's going to be things that people will hear or people around you maybe should hear as they encounter you. And, uh, and this would be helpful because at times, I know it's not often, but you are a difficult person. And so as we kind of uh, have that somber intro, I wanted to maybe then go into a couple jokes, if that's okay, if I can do some jokes. Uh, I don't know how old you have to be to remember the name, like, Jeff Foxworthy. Does anybody know Jeff Foxworthy? Classic, like, classic. His stand-up comedian go-to was you might be a redneck if 
And uh, it's so funny, especially if like, well, it's so funny. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm going to, not, I'm not going to be as funny, but uh, I'm going to start off with you might be a difficult person. Uh, and I just have a few examples. And some of these are going to be funny. They might get a little more serious and slash like you might start to feel something towards the end. But you might be a difficult person if, as a kid, your imaginary friend was constantly ticked off at you. You might be a difficult person if your parents have moved, but they forgot to tell you where they were going to. You might be a difficult person if people salute you at work and you're not in the military. You might be a difficult person if you walk into a room and there's a collective sigh. You might be a difficult person if you're finding telemarketers are hanging up on you more than you're hanging up on them. This might start to hit home a little more. You might be a difficult person if you chalk your most tense moments up to your Enneagram number and not you, who you are. Well, less laughs. Huh. You might be a difficult person if you've had an uh, argument unresolved, even though in the middle of it you knew that actually the other person was right. I wrote that one from experience. I do that sometimes with Catherine. Sorry. You, uh, you might be a difficult person if your idea of keeping the peace is just saying, I don't do drama and walking away. You might be a difficult person if you find that every story someone tells you, you instantly go into a bigger and better story that you're going to share right after that. And you might be a difficult person if you hate me a little bit right now. And so I want to remind us, you might be a difficult person. We all encounter difficult people. And usually I love to like find a passage and just anchor ourselves there. We're going to be a little bit of everywhere this morning, and we're going to hop around because Jesus was the master at dealing with difficult people or dealing with people that had difficult circumstances. So I want to look at a few things that he did in his life, and then I want to say, okay, maybe we can learn something from that. We can learn to become a little bit more like him. And, and so we're going to go to Luke 10, if you have most likely a phone. Luke 10, 38. And this, if you've been around church, you've heard the story of Mary and Martha. So we're going to go there, but we're going to look at it with a little bit different of perspective. So it's Luke 10, 38. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened up her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha. The Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And, and this is a classic, I mean, if you've been around church, this is such a good passage to remind us uh, that Jesus cares more about being with us than the things that we do for him. It's a great application to pull from this, but there's something else going on. I mean, Martha wasn't completely off, like, and we always pit Mary against Martha, and you're being a Mary, no, you're being a Martha, and actually, Martha wasn't too far off, and as I read this, and uh, it seems like maybe potentially, Mary was just lazy, right? Maybe Mary was a little bit lazy, and as a one, and this is the last Enneagram reference, as a one on the Enneagram, this, like, high justice, I'm a little bit like, dang, I wish that Mary would have just chipped in. And if you're a two, you probably get that. And if you're a six, you were loyal to that. Actually, most numbers on the Enneagram probably can relate more with Martha. It's you sevens that would have just been sitting there, enjoying everything. Again, last Enneagram reference, but sevens just need to be put in their place because they think they're so great. 
Mary chooses to sit at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus says, actually, no, that's the better thing that you should be doing. And I want to look at how Martha attacks a problem and how Jesus attacks a problem. Martha looks at it, and she doesn't attack actually the problem, because there is a problem. You're hosting. Last week, Tyler talked about hospitality. He didn't say anything about not feeding people and leaving your house a mess. So Martha apparently wasn't way off. But, Jesus, or, but Martha says, look, there's a problem going on here. Jesus, Mary is in the wrong. So Martha attacks the person instead of the problem. Martha goes after the person, and she actually does what most of us do, which is she attacks the person to another person. She says, Jesus, you should fix this. You should tell Mary. She's being awful. She's not helping me at all. You should tell her to fix this. And so Martha attacks the problem and doesn't really care for the person. But Jesus, who is the master of difficult people and the master of difficult situations, Jesus actually looks and he attacks the problem and still somehow cares and loves the person. It's the countercultural way that Jesus lived his life where he addresses the problem and says, here, actually, I think there's a perspective issue. There's actually probably a priority thing that you're doing wrong. And he still somehow left Martha feeling cared for. He left the situation not um, diminishing who Martha was. Jesus was so good, and I want to set the baseline this morning. Jesus was so good at dealing with problems while still loving and caring for people. And I was thinking about how we could talk about each difficult person and what they look like, and I realized actually in a few conversations this week that my definition of difficult uh, is potentially and probably different than yours. And we can't go through every kind of difficult person or every kind of difficult situation. But then I started to really think about, like, how do you solve these? And what's the Bible say? And what did Jesus do? And there seems to be a number of difficult situations, but a universal kind of two-pronged approach to the solution. It's healthy conflict and true forgiveness. Good, healthy conflict and true forgiveness will solve, I would say, almost any relational strife, any difficult situation that you have with a person. And so I want to start with conflict and how to have good conflict. And I love the intro that Caitlin gave me because I do, I do really love good conflict. And in Psalm 133, it's a chapter of the Bible that David wrote, and it's three verses. It's very simple. Uh, you can read it. But he starts off by saying how good it is for brothers to dwell in unity. And it's ancient Jewish context. It's brothers and sisters. Um, we're the bride of Christ. Men, we can get over that. But he says how good it is that brothers or brothers and sisters dwell in unity. And then at the end, he says that, he, that God commands his blessing to that place. God commands his blessing towards unity. It's not this passive thing. It's not this like, well, God lets blessings seep in. Like, if there's unity there, it's almost this, like, military language where God commands his blessing towards people that are living in unity. And it's affirmed in the New Testament in John 17. Jesus talks about how supernatural love is going to be one of the ways people know that we're different. And God commands his blessing towards unity. He commands his blessing towards those that live there. And the unfortunate reality about unity is it often has to come through the path of conflict. I mean, unity sometimes just happens, and it'll happen for a season, but it won't happen forever without eventually going through the path of conflict. And Jesus was not afraid of conflict. Jesus was not afraid. The Bible is not anti-conflict, but Jesus very much engaged in conflict, but he did it in a way that was probably different than most of us lean into. And, uh, and so, as Caitlin said, I 
among like good friends or friends that have known me for a while, I have a reputation of conflict, and it's good, I think. Uh, I take it as good. Usually it's like, oh, Chris, you love conflict, and like you're good at it, and, uh, and it usually ends up really well, and there is this reputation, I mean, really, among like good friends where it's like, you just, you're so good at conflict, and you love to do good conflict, and, uh, and I know you think that being a pastor is just reading the Bible and praying, but actually there's a lot more like hard conversations that go into this, and so I've just learned, especially when I first became a pastor and took over kind of a messy church, I just had lots of conflict. I had to have lots of hard conversations with people that were mad at this or upset with them, and, and I learned, I at least learned a few things about conflict, and one of the things I learned, and this might surprise actually some of my good friends, is that I hate it. I actually hate conflict. I, I really, I, in all of the things that you experience, I experience too. Like, you know, when your heart like, starts to speed up before like, a tense moment or a tense conversation, my heart starts to speed up. I start to uh, talk myself out, and I'm so convincing, by the way. I start to talk myself out of like, why you don't have to do this or why you don't have to have this conversation. I start to see like a, a digital like Rolodex in my mind of names of people that should be having this conversation instead of me. I actually, and this could be surprising, but I actually hate conflict, but I am, I, I'm, admittedly, I'm obsessed with unity. I like, I am obsessed with this idea of friends and people around me that I love and trust. And I have found, and I do not do this perfectly, but I've found the best way towards this like, great goal that I have of unity is through this like lesser evil of conflict. It is often the best way towards unity, and we know that unity is one of the ways that God leads us to blessing. Unfortunately, yeah, conflict is the best way that we get to that. Uh, Patrick Lencioni, I love him. He's uh, a leadership guy, book, uh, like business consultant, and he says that conflict with love and trust is the pursuit of truth, Conflict without love and trust is just politics. Conflict with love and trust is the pursuit of truth, but conflict without that baseline of love and trust is just kind of this jockeying for position or making the other person feel bad. And, uh, and a few weeks ago, I said, when I was talking uh, about singleness, I said that my marriage has been relatively easy. Um, we've been married almost eight years, and, uh, and I know that's not the case for everyone. We don't feel like God's just like blessed or chosen us, but thus far, and maybe year eight gets hard, but um, thus far our marriage has just been pretty easy. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. One, we did so much counseling, like an insane amount of counseling. But the other one is uh, that we started to engage in conflict in our dating years because our dating was awful. <laughs> Still good? Uh, our dating was actually really terrible. Uh, the fir- we dated slash engaged for two years. It was the first year was just like, and we didn't have a whole lot of conflict. We just didn't see eye to eye on anything. It was, and what's crazy is we had good friends around that didn't encourage us to break up. I don't know why, because it doesn't, looking back, it made no sense. We weren't in love. It wasn't like this destined, like we were just kind of liking each other. And it's like, but man, we don't agree on anything. And a couple things turned. One, we started going to pre-engagement counseling, which is wonderful, recommend it. The other thing, <laughs> is, and I don't know where I got this idea from, but the other thing is that I set up um, conflict nights for us. And I didn't call it that. I know, don't you wish you dated me in college? (laughs) I set up conflict nights where, (laughs) 
once a month, once every six weeks, we would get together and we would, uh, we'd write it all down because you don't want to speak off the cuff on this stuff, but we would go through three things that are going well and two things that are not. And we were just there for the things that are not going well. But it was great to have a little buffer and, and encourage each other along the way. And, uh, and guys, the cra- I can only speak from my experience, but the craziest thing is we would go into that kind of conflict and we would leave liking each other more. Or we would leave a little bit more in love. Or we would leave feeling way more optimistic about our relationship. There, there was one instance, and I didn't run this by Catherine, so. Uh, there was one instance where we got together. And I remember we were outside her sorority, and, uh, and she shared with me, she's like, I don't think you're really leading me well, like spiritually. I don't think that that's going very well. I know, hard to believe. Uh, the problem was it was true. And, and so she shares this, like, really deep, really tough thing to hear. And I remember I shared with her, and it, it really was real to me, but I said, sometimes when you tell me stories, you tell me way too many details. <laughs> Again, you all wish you dated me in college. <laughs> I said, look, I don't know why, but you, there, and, and it, it's so not the case with her now. She's not exactly, like, a wild talker. But I said in the moment, like, there, there were stories that she was telling me probably about her sorority because, gosh, I didn't care. I'm just kidding. Uh, but she would tell me stories, and it's like, man, there's just a lot of details there. And so she tells me this. You're not leading me well. You talk too much. You give too many details. And we leave, I remember this, we leave there feeling so much more in love and, like, optimistic towards our relationship. And I don't use supernatural, like, I don't use that word lightly, but it was almost like this was a supernatural occurrence where we engaged in healthy conflict and thus walked away after hearing incredibly hard things, feeling better and better about our relationship. That doesn't make sense. And healthy conflict not only is something that can help you engage with difficult people, but it can make good relationships stronger. It can make good relationships stronger. And one of my favorite Jesus moments, so another instance of Jesus doing this well, is uh, it's in John 8, and uh, it's the woman that's caught in adultery. And so this woman, like literally in the act of adultery, uh, is caught by the Jewish leaders, and she's uh, kind of drugged into the temple courts and thrown before Jesus this rabbi. And, uh, and the, the guys that threw her there weren't specifically concerned with the law at that moment, and they certainly weren't concerned with her. Their primary objective was to trick Jesus. How can we get him to either be unloving and stone her, because that's what the law commanded, or how can we get him to break the law so that he's not viewed as this good, holy rabbi? And so they put the woman before Jesus, and I want you to just imagine, like, this is an honor and shame culture, and, and women, I mean, Tyler talked about this a few weeks ago, women already started with a little bit of a disadvantage. Like, there was already a little bit of shame there. And then you're caught in one of the most shameful things that you could do in the act of it. She might, and I, we don't know this, she might not have even had time to, like, fully get clothed. And she's thrown in the temple courts before this, like, rabbi where there's whispers that he could be Messiah. And she's thrown there. And Jesus says, okay. Um, and they say, what should we do? Our law commands that we stone her. What do you think? totally trying to trick him. And he's brilliant. First, he says nothing. And then he bends down and he starts to write in the dust on the ground. And uh, does anybody know what he was writing? Nobody knows. <laughs> lots of, lots of uh, assumptions, lots of theories. We don't know. We assume it was profound, probably not a grocery list, but he starts to like write in the dust. And then he says, okay, well, whoever uh, is without sin, why don't you go ahead and throw the first stone? And one by one, starting with the oldest, uh, people start to leave. The religious leaders start to leave. 
until there was no one left. And I want to pick up in verse 10 and 11. It says, Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, because it's just the two of them, He says, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, and I love this, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. And I love, and Jesus is my hero for so many reasons, like salvation being at the top, but this instance right here is like amazing. This is absolutely mind-blowing because Jesus, and imagine being this woman. Like there is so much shame associated with you laying there in front of all these people caught in the midst of your sin, and you're thrown before this like rabbi who could be the one that you've been waiting for, and you're thrown before him, and literally your life is on the line. Is he going to say something? And you're waiting for the first word that he says because this is going to tell you the direction that this is going. Is this going to end in death or is it going to end in something else? And the first thing that Jesus says after he asks that question is, well, neither do I. I don't condemn you either. He unloads so much grace on her. He unloads so much forgiveness. In the midst of her shame, the first thing that she heard was grace and compassion. In conflict, Jesus often led with love. It's one of the best ways to engage in good conflict. He leads with love, and he leads with this unbelievable grace. But then, and sometimes we miss this part, then he says, go and sin no more. And that's the part that at least Christians probably have the reputation of in the world where it's like, oh yeah, they're good people, or they're trying to be good people, or they're always trying to get better and better, and that's true. But Jesus leads with love. But then there is this instance where he says, oh yeah, I do care about like sin. Or I do care about you like changing and becoming more like me. And he doesn't lead with it, but he ends with go and sin no more. I want your life, in light of the grace that's been given to you, I want your life to look different. In the light of injustice or uh, in conflict that you have or when someone has done something to you or in, in the face of disunity, what one is your response are you more of a, like a little bit more of a passive, like, hey, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Yeah, walk all over me. Your sin's not a big deal. Um, do you lead with that? Or are you more of the like, sin no more. Never do this again. Don't you ever cross me again. And uh, of course, tone matters, but whichever one you respond with doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means that you're wrong if it's the only thing you say. Because Jesus led with love, but then he did care a little bit about correction. And if passivity is our uh, response, it's our attempt at fake unity. And fake unity isn't unity at all. If we just say, hey, it's no big deal, nothing ever bothers us, and you walk away still bitter at the other person, that's not real unity, that's fake. But aggression is us trying to force unity. It's trying to impose our will, and without the grace of God being shown to other people, we're just trying to force our will and force our unity upon others. And Jesus, the expert at conflict, does both. He leads with this grace, he leads with love, and then he says, but I do care about correction. I would like for this to not happen again. Jesus was so brilliant at the way that he dealt with conflict. And so conflict is a big deal. Conflict's a big deal if we're talking about difficult people or specifically difficult circumstances, but equally as important, if not more, is forgiveness. It's this act of actually forgiving people. In Ephesians 4, 32, Paul says, instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. 
And, and as followers of Jesus, we should be obsessed with holiness. Like, we should be, like, so driven to become more like Jesus. And, and it usually leads us to do things like watch what we do, watch what we say, uh, watch what we watch. I mean, different things like that. And all of those are good. But it rarely leads us to say, who should we forgive? In our pursuit of Jesus, we're usually looking for the exterior, and maybe we're even thinking about like our thought life if we get really serious, but we're rarely asking the question, who should we forgive? Uh, one person said that forgiveness, unforgiveness, is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It's actually not hurting them. The more that you harbor bitterness or unforgiveness towards the other person, they might know, maybe they don't, but it's like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Um, the guy that taught me that actually was the guy that uh, started the church in Vegas that Catherine and I used to be at. His name was Dave. Uh, I moved there mostly to learn from him because he was awesome. He'd planted a couple churches. I had a dream of one day helping plant a church, so it made sense to move to Vegas and be with this guy. And I uh, got to be on his leadership team for two years, and it was amazing. I mean, it was so fun. And then uh, he made the decision that he was going to leave, and uh, he was going to ironically move back to Ohio, to Columbus. And... Uh, we had this guy in his mid-50s picked out to be our next pastor, and it was going to be great. He's going to be awesome. Until like six weeks before Dave was supposed to leave, this guy has a dream and says, actually, I'm not supposed to be there. And, and so Dave is like, well, I'm still leaving in six weeks. And so in a matter of like six weeks, uh, he said, well, I thought this could be the plan, but it didn't seem right because you're so young. But he said, Chris, I actually think you're supposed to lead this church. And in a matter of six weeks, I was like handed this church um, that was doing fine, but had some messes. And, uh, and Dave left in a hurry. He didn't change his timeline. I felt like I was handed like something that was about to die, and, uh, and I had to deal with it. And for the first six months of Dave leaving, I, it's the reason I learned conflict so well. I had so many messes that I felt like I had to clean up. I had so many people that David brought on board that were just really difficult. Actually, just one. Um, but he was enough for multiple people. And, uh, and it wasn't just me, it was our whole leadership team that had to deal with this, but I remember we would go through, like every few months, uh, our leadership team would go through this thing called a freedom encounter, where we'd figure out who have we forgiven, who have we not forgiven, what's going on, are we thinking about this? It was like a spiritual diagnostic test. And every time it'd be like, oh man, I didn't realize I had unforgiveness towards that friend, or that neighbor. And then at the end of it, this is terrible, but at the end of it, all of us would look around and be like, oh yeah, and we haven't forgiven Dave. And we'd just laugh. Because it's like Dave left us a mess and we, we felt like that was just going really poor. Like we were so like PTSD from the first six months of him leaving. But we'd laugh and say, ah, oh, we haven't forgiven Dave. And it wasn't a big deal. Uh, and that went on for a couple years until we decided to move to Cincinnati and uh, help start this church. I figured I should call Dave and say what I was doing. And so I called him and I said, hey, I'm moving to Cincinnati. Actually, just going to be down the road from you. Um, I said, also, because uh, I knew I was supposed to do this even though I didn't do it for two years. But I said, also, I want you to know that you left in such a hurry. And, uh, and I was 26 at the time. I was like, I felt like you left me a church that was kind of a mess. And, uh, and it really like, was hard to get through. And I just want you to know that like, that was very difficult and I didn't feel like you cared. I really actually felt abandoned in that moment. And uh, Dave like, paused for 10 seconds on the phone, which is classic Dave, felt like an eternity. And then he said... Um, I'm really sorry that that was your experience. And he said, I'm really sorry that that's the way things played out for you. I didn't, I didn't mean for that to happen. 
it was not a profound apology. It was not a profound confrontation. But I can't describe to you in that moment what I felt. I, I literally did feel a physical weight on me that I did not know I was carrying. It was instant. As soon as he said that, it was like, oh my gosh, I forgive him. And I felt this weight come off of me. And it's, if you've forgiven someone that has like really hurt you or that's really close to you, you probably know what I'm talking about. But it was unbelievable. I had no idea I was carrying it around until in that moment he said, and I'm sorry, that's the way things played out. I instantly forgave him. I instantly knew I forgave him because I love this guy. And I felt this weight being raised off of me. Forgiveness is such a big deal. Forgiveness is such a big deal. And we often walk around so focused on the other things that we're supposed to do that we forget who we haven't yet forgiven. Uh, there's an author, Larry Crabb, who wrote a book, uh, The Safest Place on Earth. And he says the difference between spiritual and unspiritual community is not whether conflict is, exists, but what is our attitude towards it. And our attitude towards conflict has to be reconciliation and forgiveness. It's just not an option for the Christian. It's just not an option for the person that follows Jesus. It's not okay to say, well, screw them. Like, that's not an okay response. We always are driven towards forgiveness and reconciliation. And especially at this church, that's going to be the drive of our relationships, is reconciliation and forgiveness is the only outcome that we can have. And that doesn't mean you've got to be around dangerous people. That doesn't mean that you have to be best friends with everyone that's difficult. But it does mean that there has to be a reconciliation and a forgiveness with people in our lives. Because, remember, and this is in your notes, we are difficult people. We are difficult people. And the greatest act of conflict resolution the world has ever known is what we call the gospel. It's this idea, and the Bible says this, and it's just crazy to think about. But at one point, we were enemies of Christ. We were, and the Bible says we were enemies of Christ. We were against him. We were rebelling against him. And, and I want to share what that gospel is. We don't do this a lot, and, uh, and I felt like this is a good way to end. And if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, um, you've heard this before. Listen again, because we don't ever graduate past this. There is no Christianity 201, 301, 401 that moves past the gospel. And if, uh, if you're not quite sure about this Jesus thing, this would be worth a listen because this is the whole reason we're here. It's not because Jesus was such a good teacher or he did so well with that Mary and Martha thing, so we formed a religion around him. We're here because we believe that Jesus solved the only problem that could not be solved on our own. There was no science. There was no teamwork. There was no... Uh, ingenuity that we could come up with to solve this problem because we had a God who was uh, many things. We have a God who is many things, but three of them are uh, he is loving, he is just, and he is holy. And because God is holy, he is set apart from us. He cannot be in relationship with something that is not completely and utterly pure. And I know you're a good person. I am too, I think. And being good enough isn't good enough. Being good isn't the way that we get there. there. The standard isn't being good or being better than the other person. The standard is actually perfection. And God can't be in relationship with anything that's not in perfection because he is holy. And he can't just say, hey, don't worry about it. Don't just, you, you, we'll let this one slide because he's also just. It's not fair for a judge to be brought in a line of murderers and say, hey, no big deal. Try better next time. That might sound like grace, but actually it's not just. 
And in the same way, God, in his justice, cannot say, don't worry about it. This one's not a big deal. There has to be some kind of payment for the separation that we have caused. The problem is unsolvable. But God in his love, God in his love said, that's not okay with me. And the whole point of the gospel is that Jesus, the good news, he came to earth and he wanted to solve the problem with Mary and Martha and he wanted to uh, encounter this lady that committed adultery. But the reason Jesus came is to reconcile us back to God. And he didn't come just to get you into heaven, although that's part of it, but he came to get heaven into you. And he came to make a full reconciliation between the thing that was supposed to be and the thing that we are now. And Jesus came to earth to live the perfect life to pay for the sin that we could not pay for on our own. The cross is the greatest conflict of all time. It is the most unjust thing that has ever happened. Yet the empty tomb is the resolution that you could have never dreamed of. The empty tomb is the resolution that we could have only dreamed of. And I'd love the band to come back up. We're going to start to worship out of this place. I want to worship out of this idea that the gospel, this good news, this idea that Jesus has come has made it capable, has made it possible for us to have relationship with him. Jesus somehow attacked the problem of sin and separation while still loving the very people that caused it. And that's why we come. That's why we start churches. That's why we worship this God. Because he solved the problem that we could not solve on our own. And, uh, and I know a lot of us would say, yeah, I've made that decision. I'm all in. But there's some of us here, I'm sure, just to st- statistics say, that have not fully chosen to follow Jesus. Don't do it right now. Don't like just say, yeah, that sounds great. Because I want you to know, it's going to cost you something. Following Jesus is completely free. There's nothing you have to do. But it does cost you everything. And we lay down our lives to give our undivided faith and love and attention towards him. And we don't do it perfectly, but we do it increasingly. And uh, as you kind of mold that over, I want to talk. There's going to be extra people in the back uh, this morning. They want to talk. They want to pray. We would love to process that with you. But I don't want you to just say, okay, that sounds great. Get out of hell free card. I want you to really process, is this a decision that I'm ready to make? Because we don't say we just become Christians. We say that we follow Jesus. It's a lifelong commitment. But there is an utter, open, unbelievable invitation to follow him. Because he solved the greatest conflict that's ever been known to man. In the back, there's going to be the Lord's table. Um, We celebrate that if we are followers of Jesus. It's a way that we remember his death, burial, and resurrection. There's prayer in the back for anybody. Um, But we want to respond in whatever way looks right for you. We want to respond to the fact that Jesus is the greatest uh, conflict resolution, resolution of all time. He solved the problem that we could not solve. And because of that, he deserves our unbelievable and undivided worship.